Well, open your Bibles if you would. Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. Continuing our study in this gospel, mindful of the fact it's all about Jesus. We're in the gospel. The gospel was written to teach us about Jesus. You know, I think we forget that sometimes because there's so many really good things in the gospel, a lot of practical life lessons, things you can apply, that it really is, for all of that other good stuff, it's about Jesus, about showing us who he is, that his character might be fashioned in us and so we can show him to the world, or more appropriately, so he can show himself to the world through us. That's what we're, we're all about. We pick up Mark's account after some very significant things have happened. Uh, there was the healing of the leprous man in the Capernaum synagogue, showing Jesus' power over darkness. There was the calling of Matthew, the healing of a paralytic, showing Jesus' authority to forgive Jesus sat with his disciples in the home of Matthew, the notorious tax collector. Tax collectors were so vile they needed a separate category. It had to be tax collectors and sinners, showing Jesus' mission to seek and save the lost. It's all about Jesus. And so now we turn to the last 11 verses of chapter 2, and we're going to look at two events in these verses. Um, they're distinct, but they also share a lot in common and they come to a very similar conclusion. So without any more of my words, let's look to the word of the Lord. Mark chapter 2, verse 18. And John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And they came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, While the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom do not fast, do they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear results. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost, the skins as well. No one puts new wine, rather, but one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. And it came about as he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples began to make their way along while picking heads of grain. The Pharisees were saying to him, See, why are they doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and became hungry, he and his companions? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests. And he gave it also to those who were with him. And he was saying to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Consequently, the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Father, we thank you for your word this morning as we look to it. Father, our purpose, our task is that we might know more of your Son that his character might be made real in us, that through us it can be shown to the world. Lord, we want that to happen, and so we lend ourselves to that task this morning. In Jesus' name. So two events, question about fasting, question about Sabbath-keeping. Distinct, but with some real strong common elements. We're going to look at those, look at the common points as well as the distinction. Look at the specific lesson that Jesus taught through this. And then finally, look to the conclusion of the matter, which points very directly to him. So let's begin talking about the first event, 
question about fasting. Let's, let's talk about fasting. Isn't that everybody's favorite subject, fasting? We all talk about fasting, yeah. Um, some might not know what it is. Fasting is when you voluntarily uh, do without something that would otherwise be good. First, first point of information, you cannot fast sin. It's not like I got this sin and I'm not going to do it for three weeks, right, and then I'm going to go back to it. That's not fasting. <laughs> We're supposed to repent of it and stop, right? So it's, sin does not count. No, it's got to be something, typically food or drink, that is otherwise, you know, normally good and cool and you can do it, right? And you, you give that up for a period of time. Sometimes it's... Um, for a specific time, we're in the middle of Lent right now. I don't know how many of you are practicing Lent. But traditionally in the church, um, some traditions are more observant than others. For 40 days, uh, something typically meat uh, has been given up leading up to the celebration of the resurrection. Um, the Roman Catholic Church famously, um, traditionally, they gave up meat on Fridays. How many of you are old enough to remember at school fish sticks on Friday? Yeah, there's a few of us left around, right? That was an accommodation of the Roman Catholic Church, and I loved it because I like fish sticks, right? So that was, a, that was traditionally, uh, that was a fast. Um, I, I'll never forget, I'll never, because the, the, the Greeks are really big on the fast before resurrection. Walking into a McDonald's, 40 days before Easter, no meat. Walking into a McDonald's and literally seeing a Mc40 menu. It had a, yeah, it takes a while to process that one, right? Um, it had a special menu for Lent that emphasized all the fish stuff, you know. Fish sandwiches, I love them. Which technically didn't, but never mind. Um, sometimes uh, fast is in response to a crisis. In fact, most of the references to fasting in the Old Testament are response to some kind of a, of a crisis. Um, in 2 Samuel 12, David was fasting during the illness of Bathsheba's first child, right? Uh, in Ezra 8... Uh, they're fasting in preparation to return to the promised land from Babylon. Esther, um, that's a big one, Esther. Esther, as we know, was called to go in before the king and plead for mercy upon the Jewish people. Uh, her uncle Mordecai told her that was, that was her thing to do. That was, she was called to that moment, that hour. She reminded him that she hadn't been called, and if she went in, having not been called, the penalty was death. And he said, you need to go in. And she said, fine, you're going to put some skin in this game, buddy. You're going to fast. So that was called because of the crisis that the Jewish people were facing then. Um, Jeremiah chapter 36, it was response to some spiritual decline. Joel chapter 2, again, response to spiritual decline in the nation, the prospect of judgment. Jonah is one of the best examples of fasting in Scripture because it's so weird. Jonah, as you recall, was told to go to Nineveh, capital of those wicked, wicked Assyrians. They were so wicked, they were good at it. Took pride in it, as ungodly as a nation has ever been. And Jonah was told to, not to preach repentance, just judgment. Terrifying message. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh is overthrown. That's it. Judgment is decreed. It's going to happen. And despite his best efforts to not go, he ended up going, you know, you know how it goes, and Jonah goes into Nineveh, and he preaches God's judgment. And then he goes, he sits under a tree and waits for it, and what happens? Them lousy, them lousy Ninevites repented. They had a fast. The king called for a fast, and God withheld judgment. And Jonah, in that beautiful story, was so mad. I don't like, I didn't want to say that to them because I, what? What does he say? I know the kind of God you are. You're quick to forgive. They repent, because Jonah wanted them to be judged, right? 
But they, his ungodly nation responded to the message of God's judgment through fasting. They honored the God of the Israelites, the God of Scripture, by fasting, and God turned from judgment. That's an amazing, amazing story. Uh, in Zechariah, the subject kind of changes where God begins to discuss the nature of the fasting of the people because they did it a lot. There's only one spot in the Old Testament where it's definitely called for. That's the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. The entire nation was to fast. But there were multiple traditions that were added to that. So the people of Israel fasted on a regular basis. You know, that even shows up in that parable we looked at some time ago where Jesus talked about the, the tax collector and the Pharisee who go to the temple to pray. And, then, and, the, and the tax collector won't even approach the temple. He bows his head, Lord, I'm not worthy. And what does the Pharisee say? He says, Lord, I'm glad I'm not like everybody else. I fast twice a week. I give a tithe. And he talked about how righteous he was. We talked about fasting twice a week. So they had all these traditions that had been built up. Well, Zechariah raises the question of just how legitimate those fasts were. In Zechariah 8.20, uh, he says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth, the fast of the fifth, the fast of the seventh, the fast of the tenth months, will become joy, gladness, and cheerful feast for the house of Judah. So love, truth, and peace. Meaning, all this fasting you're doing has been distracting you what was going on. You should be looking for when the Messiah comes, right? Which really comes to a head, really comes to a head when we get into the, into the fast of Isaiah, Isaiah 58. We'll look at that in just a few minutes. So fasting was an expression of mourning and repentance. It was a part of powerful supplication in the case of David, in the case of Esther, in the case of Ezra. It was supplication. It was a way of demonstrating our... And this is my best expl explanation. Because people frequently ask me, well, what exactly does fasting do? To which my answer is, I don't know. But I know that the people of God have done it. And there's a benefit to it when it's done correctly. Turn it in your Bibles, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 58. Remember, Isaiah is often spoken of as, as the fifth gospel because it talks so much about, about Jesus, and it prepares the way for Jesus. And Isaiah says this in the 58th chapter, well-known reference. It says, cry aloud, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgressions. This is God speaking to the prophet. And to Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me day by day and delight to know my ways as a nation that's done righteousness has not forsaken the ordinance of God. They ask me for just decisions. They delight in the nearness of God. That second verse, by the way, is all sarcastic because that's not what they're doing. They're acting like that, but that's not who they are. He says this in the third verse, or rather the people of Israel ask this in the third verse. Why have we fasted and you don't see? Why have we humbled ourselves and you do not notice? Behold, on the day of your fast, you find your desire. You drive hard all your workers. In other words, while you're fasting, you're working the pants off your employees and your slaves and your servants. That's not a fast, right? Behold, you fast for contention and strife, to strike with a wicked fist. You do not fast like you do today to make your voice heard on high. He said, Israel, you're fasting, sure enough. 
but it's not having the effect you want because your heart's not in the right place. So there's a right way and a wrong way to do it. He goes on to say this in verse 5, Is this a fast like which I choose, a day for a man to humble himself, for bowing one's head like a reed, for spreading out sackcloth and ashes as a bed? Will you call this a fast, even an acceptable day to the Lord? Is not this the fast which I choose, to loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo the bands of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. So Isaiah, speaking to the people of Israel, said, the fast that you're doing, all these fasts, all these regular days, and all this traditional stuff you're doing, it's not getting it done, is it? And you're left confused. You're left wondering, why isn't God answering? Because your heart's not in the right place. So even though the Old Testament lays out a very strong case to fast, suggests that the people of God should fast, at the same time, it says, if you don't do it in the right way, it doesn't help. In fact, all it really does is speak judgment against you. So there's a right way, there's a wrong way. You've got to be sure to do it the right way. Right? So there's a lot there to be said about fasting. What does it do? I think, if nothing else, well, my best explanation is, it's a way of showing God and showing ourselves how serious we are about the matter. Lord, I care enough about what I'm asking you, that I'm, I'm going to deprive myself, I'm going to set aside whatever it might be. We can talk more about that. Food, water. Uh, it may be um, something that I do want to, maybe a hobby, a good and healthy hobby. I'm just going to set it aside. Maybe a, something that I just like to do with my free time. It's good, it's healthy, it's fine. I'm going to set it aside, God, because I want you to see, and I want to see with my own eyes just how serious I am about the matter I bring before you. It's been the practice of the people of God, both on regular days and seasons and in times of crisis, but there's definitely a right way and a wrong way to go about it. Setting aside something that we normally would enjoy, it's good, it's godly, like a nice meal, for the purpose of focusing our thoughts on the person and character of God, showing God and ourselves just how much we care. Which brings us to our text, verse 18. Jesus is approached by some Pharisees and some disciples of John, and it may surprise you to see those two groups put together. The fact that Pharisees and John's disciples both approach Jesus together. Now, I don't know how much time they spent together, but the truth is, up until the point the Pharisees rejected Jesus, their way of seeing things and the disciples of John's way of seeing things would have actually been quite similar. The way they read their Bibles and the way we read our Bibles was very similar. It's when they come to the place of rejecting Jesus that things really, really got bad. So they come to Jesus, both the disciples of John and the Pharisees, and they ask the question, we fast, why don't you, right? And the way Jesus responds really tells us something about the way he taught his followers, okay? Clearly they didn't fast, not the way everybody else was. Now we don't know if the question here is the Yom Kippur fast, which is mandated by the law, or all the traditional fasts. But either way, Jesus' disciples are evidently not fasting, right? And that causes a problem, right? And Jesus responds by way of an analogy, right? He draws a comparison to a wedding. And he says, hey, in the days up to the wedding, the friends of, of the groom, they, they can't fast because they got the groom, and they're happy. They're having a good time. But after the wedding, you know, the good times are past. You can't sit around and watch football games with them anymore. Then they fast because they're sad, right? They're going to miss the groom. Of course, the point is that Jesus really is talking about something a lot bigger than just a groom and groomsman at a wedding. 
Jesus is talking about something much deeper. He says this in verse 20, when the groom is taken away. Traditional Jewish marriage feast, the groom wasn't taken anywhere. When the groom is taken away as a reference to Jesus' suffering, death, crucifixion, and resurrection, right? It speaks to us how we know that after Jesus' death came resurrection, we will rejoice in that. But at the same time, at the same time, even in our present experience, knowing that someday Jesus will come back for us, there still should be a sense of loss. As good as it is to know that my sins are forgiven, my future is in heaven, in the meantime, there should be a real sense of of loss because Jesus isn't with me now or I'm not with him now. And the truth of that there to 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 be seen is if I am content with the way things are right now, if, I, if I'm just cool waiting on Jesus here, in fact, I, I don't really care how long I have to wait, something's wrong. There should be a deep longing in my soul for the immediacy of his presence. As Pastor Joyce commented, heaven is a relationship, not a place. I mean, there is a place, yeah, but the essence of heaven is that relationship. And I should be longing to be in the immediacy of his presence. And if that longing isn't there... I can ask him for it. I, I can't think of a prayer, just you know, most of my perspective, I can't think of a prayer Jesus would be more likely to fulfill than one saying, Lord, fill me with a longing for your immediate presence. And if I have to fast to get there, I will. It's an example of where some fasting might be a good idea. I'm not saying that to guilt anybody, just to encourage all of us, myself included, to focus our thoughts and our attentions on his presence, right? He then reinforces that with a couple of analogies, both of which are really well known, but they both move beyond the immediate issue, and that's what I really want to focus on. The first is that of a new and an old cloth. He says you don't take an old cloth when it's torn and put a a patch of a new cloth because the old cloth, likely being wool or cotton, right, is already, already shrunk, but the new patch, which is wool or cotton, both of which shrink, will shrink, and then it'll tear. It's just impractical. You would never do that. And he adds to that, you don't put new wine in old wineskins. Why? Because the new wine, as it ferments, will expand, and the old wineskin, having already stretched to its maximum capacity, will burst. Both make the same point. You can't mix new and old. Right? Now, I want you to think about this just for a second. Jesus was, was, was challenged about the fact his, Pharisee, his disciples weren't fasting. And he responds by talking about the wedding, all right? And, and, and the groom and the groom's attendants. That sufficiently answered their question. He then went beyond that to draw two analogies. Putting a new cloth patch on an old garment, that doesn't work. And putting new wine in old wineskins, that doesn't work either. Now, we hear that. I think we're all familiar with, you know, the idea of, you know, you don't put new wine in old wineskins. We've heard a hundred sermons on that, right? When I say that to you, when you read that in the text, Jesus said you don't put a new cloth on an old garment. You don't put new wine in old wineskins. How do you react? What's your emotional reaction to that? Probably good, but it's not like, right? It's not really, there's not a lot of emotional energy in our answer, right? Put yourself in the seat of a first century Pharisee. 
You're hearing this rabbi. You've brought to his attention the issue of fasting. Vital to your traditions. And he says to you, you don't take an old cloth, old garment rather, which is torn, and put new cloth on it. You don't take new wine and put it in old wineskins. How do you react? The veins in your neck are about to burst. And there is one question on your mind. Who does this man think he is? What did he just say? He just said that all of these traditions, all of these truths, all of these practices, which are the very center of your relationship with God, they're an old garment. They're an old dried up wineskin and something new is coming along. Who does this man think he is to make that kind of a statement? I've said it before. I'll keep saying it. They didn't crucify him because they didn't understand him. They crucified him because they understood him perfectly. He was claiming an authority in that moment. You know, we're so used to there being two parts to the book, right? We're cool with that. We just take that as they didn't have the second part. It was nowhere on their radar. All they had was what we call the old. That was the book. Those were the scrolls. And he just said, that's old, we're replacing it. Who does this man think he is? He was making a statement about who he was. Then he comes to another matter. Verse 23, they're walking through fields. His disciples begin to pick grain with their hands. It's a, it's a Saturday, it's a Sabbath. And they begin to rub the grain between their hands, primitive form of threshing. And eating the grain, the Pharisees get upset. This is a Sabbath. The grammar suggests they said it immediately. So I would think they were probably like following along after him, waiting for them to mess up and try to catch him in something. Bingo, we got him. They're harvesting grain. That's work on the Sabbath. Jesus references a situation in the Old Testament. Again, most of you know it. When David was fleeing from Saul, 1 Samuel 21, he came to Ahimelech in the village of Nob. It's a priestly village, a lot of priests live there. And he says, do you have anything for us to eat? The priest says, well, all we have is, is the bread of the presence. That was the bread that was put before the altar every day. It only stayed there for one day. Came off the altar, fresh bread was put on. It was holy bread, only the priest could eat it. If you know the incident, you know that David told the priest, look, um, my men are on a holy mission. They've been sent by the king. Actually, he said we're on the king's business. Well, the king's business was he was trying to catch David and kill him. So David's kind of playing a little bit loose with the truth there. This is a more complicated story than we have time to go into. But David convinces the priest to give him the bread, and he gives him the bread, and it's okay. And so Jesus says, look, if bread was okay then because they needed it. It's okay now because my guys need it, right? And he reinforces a point that the law itself was never intended to deprive people of what they needed. It's, it's a divine equation, the Sabbath is there as part of a divine equation. God understands we have to work to provide for our needs. And when providing for our needs, there's a temptation to want to work all seven days out of the week. But God says, you honor me, and you respect the physical body that you dwell in because it needs rest. You honor me by setting one day aside to not work, and you focus on me that day, 
And I will take care of you so well that you'll never miss the income you thought you might have earned on that seventh day. I will take care of you. It's an act of trust, an act of worship. God says, you trust me in that way, I'll provide for you. That, by the way, is why Sabbath and tithe are so often connected, you know, giving to the work of the Lord. God says, you take that which you could use and you invest it in the work of the Lord and I will take care of you, you'll never miss it. Doesn't mean I'll make you rich, but you'll never miss it because I'll take care of you. God's faithfulness, our trust, engages that, again, kind of a divine equation. Well, Jesus is saying, in the case of, of the law about the bread, it was right in the law, they were not to eat it. Because my men are starving, the law should never be there to keep people from doing what they actually need to do. And Jesus spoke to that frequently. We've talked a lot about the parable that Jesus used. It was actually a Pharisaical discussion point. Which of you, if it has a sheep, falls into a pit on the Sabbath day, don't go in there and take it out. It's the, you need to do that. It'd be cruel to leave a sheep in a pit you know, when you could have gotten him out. That was a discussion that was already active in Pharisaical circles. So what Jesus is saying is even in your own discussions, you understand that some things are necessary on a Sabbath. These guys have to eat. He addresses the situation, right? And then he goes on to say this. He goes on to say this. For the Sabbath was there for man, not man for the Sabbath. It affirms the truth that the law itself was never intended to harm. It was always intended to bless. But Jesus doesn't stop there again. You know, when he, when he, when he used the illustration of, ext of extracting the sh uh, a sheep from the pit, when he used the illustration of David and his men, he effectively ended the argument. The Pharisees had been shown to be wrong, but Jesus doesn't stop there. Not enough to say the Sabbath, or man is not for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath is for man. So in verse 28, he adds this. Therefore, the Son of, of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Just as in back as back in verses 18 to 22, the question was what gave Jesus the right to say we've got something new that you can't match to the old. We've got something new you can't put in the old. There's something new that's coming. Just as the equation there or the question there was what gave Jesus the right to say that? Here the question is, what gives Jesus the right to say what is permissible and not permissible on the Sabbath? It's all about his identity, his power to do both, to speak to the Sabbath and to speak to the question of the law. Jesus could literally tell them what was allowable on the Sabbath because it was his. Five times in the Old Testament, the Sabbath is referred to as a Sabbath to the Lord. Twice it's called the Sabbath of the Lord. He made it. It's His creation. When Jesus spoke to the waters on the Sea of Galilee and said, Peace be still, why did the waters respond? Because Dad was mad. Oops. We better behave ourselves. He's upset with us. It's his creation. It's his order. He's the owner. The Sabbath was his. He created and gave it to mankind as a gift. If we'll set aside one day a week, if we'll pursue him that day, give our body the rest that it needs, focus our activities on him, he will bless us in such a way we will never miss what we could have enjoyed or done on that day. 
It's a statement about our trust. It's about our statement about our, our hope and our anticipation of who he is. You know, the, the problem for so many of us that do engage in fasting or we are involved in giving or we're doing this, these things that we do to facilitate spiritual growth, we think it's about us. We think it's a statement about us. We're just like the Pharisee who said, I fast twice a week, right? It's never about us. That's the trap. We should be exercising spiritual disciplines in our lives. That's assumed. Jesus said that when the groom is gone, his groomsmen will fast. It's just, we should be exercising spiritual discipline. We should be reading our Bibles. We should be meditating on the things of God. We should be engaged in worship. We should be engaged in meditation. We should be gathering with like believers. And, and all the other spiritual disciplines, we should be doing those things. But even when we're doing them, it's not about our doing them. It's about who he is that makes those things meaningful, that gives power to those things. You know, if, if you want to fast, or if, if you're interested in practicing the Sabbath, there's a couple of really good books I would recommend that go into a lot more detail than I have time to. Um, one is a really old book. It's like 50 years old. It's called God's Chosen Fast by Arthur Wallace. It's about that big. Great book. Explains fasting. Um, it also talks about, about giving. If you want to know about actually any of the spiritual disciplines, any of the ways that we pursue God through these kinds of activities, including the Sabbath, another really good book is The Celebration of Discipline by Richard Foster. And I refer to that book very deliberately because I know there are some here that when they hear the name of that book, go, oh, oh. Because... Spiritual disciplines were impressed in their lives in a way that wasn't healthy. And any spiritual discipline that doesn't produce life and joy, any spiritual discipline, or I should say the practice of a spiritual discipline, whether it's fasting or observing the Sabbath or giving or whatever, reading scripture, meditating, prayer. If it doesn't produce the character of, of, of Christ, something's being done wrong. And if you're one of those people, and, and again, that, I know that particular book by Foster, it, it touches a nerve with some people. Ask yourself this. Did you ever read the first chapter? Most of us like we skip over the introduction in the first chapter and get to the meaty stuff, Right? Well, the first chapter is where he talks about how to do it and not do it. Where our heart needs to be. Where our heart shouldn't be. It's where he sets, he establishes the lens. A great book, Celebration of Discipline by Richard Foster. He establishes the lens through which we see the spiritual disciplines. And the lens is this. Does it manifest the person and character of Christ? You know, one example of a spiritual discipline where this question readily applies, I know a lot of people, and I'm, I'm of, of, of a species with you, that really likes to be in the outdoors. You know, you speak to so many people. You know, I, rather than be in the gathering of the saints in church, I want to be outdoors. I don't know why that's the equation. Why not just say, I like being outdoors because I feel close to God there, right? It's always in lieu of being in church. I don't know why. But a lot of people will say, I feel so close to God when I'm in the outdoors. Let me ask you this. Or maybe you can ask them this when you run into one of them. Or maybe it's you. Um, okay, great. You feel really close to God when you're outdoors in the woods or by, the, by a stream. Maybe there is or isn't a rod in your hand. Um, 
When you're done with that, okay, you felt closer to God, that's great, but was his character established in you more clearly? Is there something about your being that more accurately reflects who he is because of that experience? Now, if not, I'm not saying that experience was bad and you shouldn't have done it. What I'm saying is you should be looking for a whole lot more out of it. And if you'll go about it the right way, you will find that even that experience, you begin to understand his character more. Right. That's, by the way, one of the reasons we have this. Because this gives us a more accurate lens. You know, Pastor Joyce, in her reading from the Psalms, talked about the sea being his. So when those waves threaten to overwhelm you in the horrific weather that sometimes can come our way in this part of the world, rather than just terror of the sea, it fashions within me a healthy respect of the one who created them, a healthy recognition of his power and his might and his majesty and his character is revealed to me, and then hopefully it is fashioned within me. The point is, whatever we do in our spiritual walk, in our faith walk, the question we have to ask is, does it manifest Christ's character in me? Whether it's the traditional spiritual disciplines or whether it's a walk in the woods. Ask yourself this about whatever you do to develop your faith, does it help you reflect Jesus, not only within yourselves, but to those around you? Is the character of Jesus made more manifest because of what I do? Because if that isn't our goal, I don't know why we're here. But here's the really good news. Here's the really, really good, here's the great news, the great news. If that doesn't resonate, if you say, you know, I read my Bible and I don't get anything, come to church and I'm not sure I get what I should. I take a walk in the woods and it's fun, but I'm not really, I'm not really sensing his presence. There's a really good answer. Ask him. Ask him. And if you question whether or not he will answer you, he answered the Ninevites and they were as ungodly as people get. And a God who in love and mercy will answer an ungodly nation like that, will answer us. He will reveal himself to us when we seek him with all our heart. Father, I thank you for your word, Lord. Father, as we look at this incredible passage of your word where it starts in the most mundane ways. It starts with, you know, Jesus and his disciples just there. Um, they're not doing the religious stuff and they get in trouble for it. But Lord, you turn that around and you show where your character is manifested in them. Lord, the issue of, of the keeping of the Sabbath, Lord, you demonstrated yourself to have authority even over your very word because it's his word, Lord. He wrote it. You gave it to us. Father, as we are about the very real challenge, Lord, of wrestling with ourselves and all that makes up who we are in our nature, Lord. I pray, Father, that as we, as we find things that we can do, Lord, if it's as simple as sitting down with your word for a moment of thought in the morning, if it's a day spent in focused concentration and thought, if it's, if it's walking out by the side of some river and just saying, Lord, I not only want to enjoy this, I want to see you in it.
and I want to see you fashioned in me. Father, if it's as parents interacting with our children, seeing the, the incredible marvel of their birth and their growth, and Father, even as parents, we sometimes struggle with that process, Lord. As we watch it happening, Father, make us mindful to ask the simple question, Lord, please show me you in this process. So much of this world, Father, declares who you are. Your word declares who you are. Make us people with eyes to see it. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord this morning.